Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? The Apostle Paul says to you and I, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the depth of the wisdom of these words and their power in our lives and in this world. Help us to fully understand what you want us to know today in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We continue with our series in Ephesians, our identity and purpose. Today's message is entitled War and Peace, Part 3. <laughs> so we're in the, the armor of God. This is the third message about the armor of God in chapter 6. And uh, we'll be completing that next week. You see in today's passage... We're going to look at the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Next week, you're going to look at the sword of the spirit. And Chris is going to be leading that message. That's the final message in this series. And so we look forward to that next Sunday morning. <clears throat> but today, the shield of faith. In verse 16, the shield of faith is mentioned when, it's, when Paul says, In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Before we talk about that, I want you to notice a couple of words in this passage or in this verse. It says, he calls us to take up, that's a command, not just an opportunity. God expects you and I to do it. And then he says, with which you can extinguish, not just fight against, or protect against, you can extinguish, that means to put out completely, all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Not one will get through. I love that about the, uh, the shield of faith and the armor of God, that God gives us armor not just to uh, be slightly wounded or not just to pull through after a few years in ICU, he says, no, we are to be untouched. If we're putting on the full armor of God, he intends us to survive the battle and more than to survive, to survive in perfect health, spiritually speaking, to be overcomers. A word about the shield. The Roman shield was a formidable defense it was huge. It was three and a half feet tall and two and a half feet wide. Now, that's a big shield. I'm not a shield expert, but I rate all my shield sizes by the size of the shield of Captain America. That's a little round thing, you know, that he threw like a Frisbee. You won't throw this shield like a Frisbee. It was, it was colossal. It had three layers of wood with linen sandwiched between each layer. It also had an outer layer of leather or animal hide. Told it all together, there was a bronze strip that was wrapped around the entire edge. Bronze. Uh, I'm not a bronze expert. Bronze is metal and metal is heavy. And a three and a half feet by two and a half feet, that's a lot of bronze. If it was hit by a flaming arrow, this shield would still burn. So before they went into battle, the soldiers would soak the shields in water. The wet linen and leather would stop the shield uh, from igniting even when flaming arrows were embedded in it. 
So you can picture this in your mind, that they take this huge shield, three layers of wood, three layers of linen, and then an outside layer of leather wrapped in metal. And if that's not heavy enough, before they went into battle, they dipped the thing in water. I don't know if you've ever dipped leather in water or not, but it soaks up water like a sponge, not to mention all of the, uh, the cloth that was in the shield. This was a huge, heavy piece of equipment. The last thing you'd want to take into battle as far as convenience go, but it was essential because they knew with that big shield in place, fully doused, that those arrows could not harm them. And so that's the description. Now for the arrows that he's talking about, the flaming arrows of the enemy, and again, this is all in an analogy, but in the first century, uh, first century the flaming arrow was an effective, formidable weapon in and of itself. It had an iron tip, which was dipped in pitch and set on fire. It was a flaming missile. And so I actually like this graphic that I found. It looks like flaming missiles, and that's really what the Apostle Paul is describing here. They could cause the enemy to panic as the arrows embedded themselves into shields and a frightened soldier would throw down his burning shield, leaving himself and those around him unprotected. You probably already know, you've seen perhaps enough movies that had Roman soldiers in it, that the Roman soldiers would use their shields combined together with all of the other shields from the other soldiers, and they would create this one huge giant shield that would shield the entire regiment against whatever was coming. Difficult to penetrate, but if you could get one soldier to run in fear, to throw down his shield, there would be a hole in the armor of the entire company. And so it was really important that they hold their ground, stand their place, and play their part of this larger shield. And so he talks about that as the shield of faith. Today, our faith is being constantly attacked, not merely from political ideologies, although it's true, but more importantly and more hideously from Satan himself. Tomorrow, Next week and next year will be no different. The battle for you and I spiritually will not end in this lifetime. From, the day that, from, from today until the day that we die, we will be in battle fighting using the shield of faith. I'm not talking about the world attacking Christianity here so much as Satan attacking Christianity. I'm not so concerned about the governments of this world or our own government. Our greatest challenge as God's people is Satan himself. I've told you before, they're all pawns, but it is Satan that is attacking us. He's the source. He is the enemy. And he can, if he can get you to a doubt, if he can get you and I to fear, if he can get us to shake our faith in Christ, then he will win the battle. In a nutshell, the flaming arrows of the evil one or any, are, are any spiritual struggles which has caused us or can cause us to be hesitant in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Right now, Satan wants you 
to question your relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants you to doubt that you're really saved if you're saved. If you're lost, he wants to convince you that you're saved when you're not saved at all. Those are his goals. For lost people, he wants them to believe that they're saved when we're really not. If he can dupe you into staying lost, he's got you. But once you're a believer in Christ, once you've been saved by the blood of the lamb, Satan's only goal for you is to convince you that you're not. He wants to beat you down and cause you to question your faith so that you are not formidable on the battlefield, that you have no protection. So what is faith? I think that's a fair question. Paul describes this shield as a shield of faith on purpose with great intent or specific intent. What is faith? Faith says God can. God can save my soul. God can give me purpose in my life. God can grant me victory against sin. He gives me the ability to stand strong through tough times when everybody else says I can't. Faith says, I can trust God no matter what. That's what faith is. That is the shield of faith. Now, there are so many wonderful examples in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike, of so many men and women throughout history, and in some cases, like David, children even, youth, young people, who have tremendous faith in God, and God gives them amazing victories. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 alone, if you know that famous chapter, time and again, the writer to the Hebrews gives example after example in the Old Testament of people who had faith from Noah to Abraham and on and on and on. But I want to give you one example this morning. This is from Daniel chapter 3. It is a story perhaps you know well. It's one of my favorite childhood stories and probably yours as well about Shadrach Meshach and Abednego. I'm just going to go there for a few moments. Before we read that, go ahead and take it off there because they're going to read it because it's a great passage. You know the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are living there in, um, in Babylon along with all of the rest of God's people. They and their parents have fallen into judgment because of their sin. God gave Nebuchadnezzar, victory over Jerusalem, prophesied through Jeremiah. God gave his people opportunity to repent time and again, and they didn't take it. So God allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed. The temple of Solomon was completely destroyed. All of the furnishings of the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, and all the other furnishings were removed from the temple and taken as spoils of war. We don't know what happened to them. Specifically, we don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Much of those spoils of war and those beautiful ornate gold cups uh, fell into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and his son. If you remember that story later on, that God would bring judgment as a result of that plunder of God's temple. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were contemporaries of Daniel. And they are there in Babylon and somebody gives the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, bad advice. They went to him and said, King, because they knew that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were people of faith. They said, King, we got this giant statue 
erect this giant statue of yourself out where everybody can see it. And when we play all the instruments, we suggest that at the sound of the instruments, everybody in the kingdom bow down to your statue, O king. And the king, being a man, said, that's a good idea. I like the sound of that. Everybody bound down to my statue. Okay, let's do that. He didn't think it through very well, but that's what he said. Now, Daniel chapter three, verse seven. Now, you, six, you, you can put it up. Whoever does not fall down in worship uh, will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So that was the plan. You hear the music, you drop to your knees. So they played the music, you know what happened. They all dropped to their knees, except for three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I told you several years ago, Cherry and I took the kids on a vacation that ended up in uh, Washington, D.C. on July the 4th, around 2015, maybe? 2015, six years ago. Oh, my goodness. Obama was our president at the time, and there was a large crowd that gathered that night between uh, on that in that long pool that they have between the Washington Mon Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, and you can put a lot of people there. There were about a quarter of a million people there on July the fourth, and they were there for the same reason I and my family were there, were to watch the fireworks. And our nation does a tremendous fireworks display every year, thanks to your tax dollars. I appreciate. It, by the way, it was real nice. So we're there, it's dark, and it's time for the fireworks to start, and they begin. And I told you this just a, a year or two ago, I want to say, there was a lady in the crowd of a quarter of a million, and she just started shouting for everybody to sit down so she could see the fireworks. She was tired of standing up, so she started yelling at everybody, sit down, sit down. And I looked at her like everybody else thinking, she's crazy, This and she probably was. I called her, uh, what, what was the name? Queen Boss of the Universe, because she's telling all of these Americans to sit down. Well, nobody's paying any attention to her. What do we care? I, I'll call her Karen for short. And Karen starts yelling, sit down, sit down. And nobody's sitting down. I think I could hear some giggling but she would not stop. And finally, the people right in front of her, because they're bearing the brunt of her yelling, finally just sat down like five or six people. It wasn't hardly anybody. And the rest of us, whether openly or in our, our heart, were laughing at those silly people for listening to her. And then another six or seven people sit down and then 60 or 70 and then 600 people sat down and she kept yelling and then a thousand people and then 10,000 people and then a hundred thousand people and all quarter of a million people ended up sitting down because of Karen. I was stunned, but no, I'm way too redheaded and stubborn for that. So here I am standing in front of this giant statue of Abraham Lincoln standing there like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody's down on the ground but me. And so you know what I did. I remembered this passage and I sat down and kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I 
but we weren't worshiping an idol at that time. But I can't help but to think of this passage. The pressure was enormous on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't you know people were heckling them and telling them, get down, get down. Don't you know if their friends were there, they were saying, because they weren't the only Jews there, by the way. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews, all of them were bowing down, except these three. What pressure. So Nebuchadnezzar sees this and he decides he's such a nice guy, he's going to give him another chance. That's not what the edict said, but he decides he gives them, he's going to give them one more chance before they, uh, before he has them executed. Of course, they could have said to themselves all kinds of things to justify why they should bow before that idol. They could have said, if we, if we get ourselves killed, who's going to look out for the welfare of the Jewish people? Who's going to watch over them? We're no good to anybody if we're dead. Even it means bowing down to this idol. We, we need to survive. They could have said, well, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. <laughs> we're just trying to fit in. They could have said, well, we'll bow down, but we won't actually worship the idol. We'll just make it look like we're worshiping the idol, but in our hearts, we'll be, really be worshiping Yahweh, the true God. They could have said, we'll worship the idol just this one time and we'll ask for forgiveness. You know the old saying, maybe they would say, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I don't think they would say that, but it's a snappy saying. They could have said, the king gave us these really sweet jobs. They had good jobs. I guess we kind of owe him. We'll just do it this one time. That's how Satan gets us. He tries to get us to compromise just one time. Oh, if he can get you one time though, that second, third, fifth, and 500th time is so much easier for Satan to get you. But they didn't do that. In Daniel chapter three, verse 16, this is their response to the king. Love the response. It's audacious. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. They're not falling for it. They're not giving in. They are fearless and audacious in their faith. And they said to him, our God's going to take care of us. Even if we die here, he's still going to take care of us. So even if he doesn't spare us here, we're still not going to bow down to your God. And so you know what he did? He threw them right into the fire. And to his shock, not one hair was singed. And there was someone, a fourth being in that fire with them. Now, who was it? Well, he didn't have a label. I, I would love for him to be standing in the fire with a, my name is, hello, my name is badge. Because many think it was a pre-incarnated version of Jesus, that it was Jesus in his pre-incarnation state. Some think it was uh, a, an angel. I think it was probably most likely an angel. Whoever it was, it represented the presence of God Almighty. That's what we need to know. Right there with them. 
On Sunday, the June, uh, June the 18th of 1815, at the Battle of Waterloo, do you remember the Battle of Waterloo from uh, your history class? I know most of you don't. I didn't. <laughs> but at the Battle of Waterloo, when the fight became its worst, an officer galloped up to the commander, uh, the Duke of Wellington, and they said, my captain says that we are being destroyed. We need reinforcements quickly. The Duke of, uh, of um, Wellington simply replied, tell him to stand his ground. The officer galloped back to relay the message to his captain. Shortly after that, the same messenger galloped back with the same message. Again, Wellington said simply to him, tell him to stand. Very soon, another officer came with the same request and Wellington's response was this, I have no help to send you. Tell him to stand. The officer, knowing what was going to happen, saluted and replied, you will find us there, sir. When the battle was fought, the Duke found each of those men at his post and they had all perished. But the battle was won because they stood. Listen, Satan wants to do anything he can right now to keep you from standing your post. Do you have the shield of faith in place? Do you believe? Because that brings us to the next and the only other piece of armor we look at today, and that is the helmet of salvation in verse 17, the helmet. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, this is the next to the last line, says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And again, we'll look at the sword next week, but the helmet of salvation. Roman military helmets could be made out of either leather or metal. They were often metal. The helmet had a band to protect the forehead and plates for the cheeks. And extended, it extended down the back to protect the neck. When the helmet was strapped in place, it exposed little beside the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. I don't know if you've been watching the Chosen series, either season one or season two, which has now been complete, but in most of those episodes, there are Roman soldiers, and they're wearing these Roman soldier first century helmets, and you'll see exactly what he's describing here. They were actually pretty brilliantly designed to protect the head and the neck. All these years later, we still wear helmets today. Some more than others, it depends on your profession. People still wear helmets for many activities, including motorcycles. I received or I bought my first motorcycle at age 14 with a helmet. Four days later, I had my first wreck. I was racing Johnny Tyner down the, the main drag in Graham, and uh, I didn't know anything about motorcycles or how fast I could take a curve, and I took one way too fast, hit some gravel, the motorcycle flipped over me. I was doing maybe 50, not, not that fast, but it was fast enough to tear the motorcycle up, and so I was stranded there until the police arrived, and I got my first citation at age 14, but I was wearing a helmet, which is the only reason I'm standing here before you today. Helmets matter. That's not a sermon about helmets and motorcycles. Do what you want, but 
my little coconut head would have popped pretty easy on that pavement had it not been for that helmet that dad made me wear. We wear helmets for four-wheelers, for bicycles, for construction workers and firefighters and coal miners. 21 centuries later, our soldiers in every branch of the military, when they're in the middle of a firefight, they are all wearing helmets because there's nothing like a helmet to protect your head. The purpose of the helmet is understandable. It's to protect your skull and your brain because without your skull and particularly without your brain, you cannot fight the fight and you could never win. In a battle, you'll survive a broken arm or a few broken ribs, but a head injury could easily become fatal. Encased in your head is the brain, and the brain is the center of our thinking and of our emotions. They had some understanding of that even in the first century. The battle, before it takes place anywhere else, takes place first in the mind. The mind is the prime target for Satan every time. If Satan can get to your mind, he's gotcha. And so there's no accident or coincidence that the apostle Paul is referring to the helmet in this matter here. In Romans chapter eight, verse six, it says this, this is Paul speaking also, the mind of sinful men, that is apart from salvation, is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. If you're wondering why people in our government, in our world who are lost, don't just understand it God's way, it's because they can't. He says the mind of sinful man is death. That is, for a small child, if you just let them go in this world, you've got a two-year-old at home, if you just let them go, open up the front door and say, good luck. And <laughs> you may want to be tempted or you may be tempted to do that with a toddler, but you know their chances are almost zero. They're not gonna survive because they don't have any kind of understanding and they're going to get themselves killed. Spiritually, you and I are that way. Left to ourselves, without the helmet of salvation, we're going to do what leads to death every single time. Spiritually. God knows that. Paul knows that. And so that's why he describes it in this way. So Paul is telling us to protect our minds from Satan. How do we do that? Well, it's called the helmet of what? The helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, you got to be saved. Without salvation, your mind is vulnerable to anything that Satan wants to throw at it. You got no helmet on. You're vulnerable. Satan, excuse me, <laughs> uh, Satan throughout all of history has struggled with this truth. Salvation is the most important weapon against Satan. So the helmet of salvation means to be saved. You will not and cannot ever have victory in life apart from salvation. You will not and cannot ever have victory in life apart from salvation. No degree in college will protect you from that. No career path will protect you from that. No spouse, 
No event will ever protect you from that. No person, no president, no king, no one can ever protect you from that. The only thing that can protect you from death and from Satan is salvation in Jesus Christ. Do you want a miracle today? The greatest miracle ever given by God isn't the miracle of healing. It's not the miracle of health or the miracle of a long health or wealth or the miracle of a long life. It is the salvation of our souls. The fact that God redeems you and I is miraculous. Our redemption from death to life, from defeat to victory, is God's miracle for you and for I. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says it this way, and again, it's a favorite verse I like to share. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. So the helmet of salvation is there to help renew your mind. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, salvation, I believe, is a one-time event. It's just like you don't get married every week. Well, I hope you don't get married every week. You don't get married every week to the same person. Your marriage doesn't expire in two weeks and you go run into your, your spouse and you have the envelope from the register's office at the courthouse and they say, they say your marriage is expiring tomorrow. And you say to your wife or your husband, oh my goodness, we got to get down there. It's about to expire. We got to get married again. It's a one-time deal. It's supposed to be intended to be a one-time thing. Well, salvation is a one-time vow. It is a surrender to Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But if you're a believer in Christ, if you're saved by the blood of the Lamb, then your destiny is heaven. Your victory is assured. But again, I always say this, if you're lost, Satan's first goal for you this, this day his first goal for you is to convince you that you're saved. If you're lost, he wants, you to make, he wants to make you think that you're saved. We have people out there in our world and in our nation today, in our culture, they don't even believe in God and yet they believe they're saved. If you're lost, Satan's number one goal is to convince you, to lie to you and convince you that you're saved. If you're saved, Satan's number one goal is to convince you that you're lost. That's how he works. If he can deceive the lost people into staying lost and make the, the believers think that they are not saved, that they have no defense against Satan, then he'll beat us down every time. So how do we do that? Well, I can tell you that while salvation is a one-time commitment and surrender to Jesus Christ, it's absolute surrender. But from then on, you're saved. But the transformation of your mind takes a lifetime. It's just like that toddler. You can start talking to that toddler about college algebra or physics, but that toddler's not going to get it. But well, I didn't at least. <laughs> I still don't get it. I don't remember anything from algebra. They're not there yet. They're not ready. There needs to be a transformation of their mind. When they're born, they don't know anything. All they know is instinct. To cry when they're hungry and cry when they're poopy. That's all they know. 
Everything else, you mom and dad have to teach them. And you teach them and teach them and teach them and teach them. And the reason you teach them all those basic lessons as a little child is you hope to goodness that one day they'll grow up and their mind will be transformed and they can take care of themselves. They'll do well in their life. They'll be on the right path in their life. They're not there at two years old, but you hope the day will come. You're, you're teaching them at two with the hopes that at 20, 30, 40, 50, they'll get it. They'll be transformed. It's a lifelong process. There's nothing sadder than a 40-year-old man who thinks like a two-year-old. You've seen it, haven't you? Probably more often than not, God desires us to be transformed just as mentally we're transformed into maturity. Spiritually, there is a transforming of our mind that takes place. Don't get stuck as a toddler in your spiritual life. So how do we put on this helmet of salvation? How do we receive salvation? I'm going to end with a verse today. And I usually just share one verse, it's Romans 10, 9, but I want to share with you verse 10, uh, 9 through 13. Look there with me if you would. It's a great passage. Paul says, this is Paul again, writing the church in Rome, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, if you do this, you, and do this, you'll be saved. And we'll get back to that in a minute, but look at verse 10. He then expounds on that. He says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It's all about the heart and your confession with your mouth. As the scripture says in verse 11, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love verse 12. I'm going to kind of go backwards. First of all, he says in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, not might or can be, but will be saved. And then that, that announcement, that call for us to call on the name of the Lord is preceded in verse 12, where he says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. That don't mean a lot to you and me. But in this world, it was shocking. You see, since the day of Abraham, for thousands of years, the Israelites, the Jews, believed that they were God's people and rightly so. That if you wanted to come to God, if you wanted to have any kind of hope of salvation as they understood it, it came through Judaism. It came through them that they were a privileged people and nobody else on earth, no other tribe, no other nation, no other people group had any hope of salvation. If you wanted to be saved, you had to become Jewish and be a part of their nation. And that was hard to do, by the way. And so the Jews saw all people on the earth as one of two categories, Jews or everybody else. And they called them Gentiles. So you're one of us or you're everybody else. And so if you want to go from everybody else to heaven, you have to become one of us. Here's what he says. And so this is why it's so shocking. For there is no difference between Jew 
and Gentile. You, you have to understand the shock in the hearts of the readers if they're Jewish. <laughs> Reading that, going, what? what did he just say? How can that be? The reason is because salvation through Christ is for everyone. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whether American or Ethiopian, whether Italian or Russian or North Korean, it doesn't matter whether you're Indian or Mexican or anybody else. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, redheaded, blonde-headed, silver-haired or no-haired. It doesn't matter if you're the smartest in the person in the room or the dumbest. It doesn't matter for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is universal. There are not many things in this world like that, are there? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? So that brings us back to verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He says, if you do this and you do this, you'll be saved. You notice what he doesn't say in those verses? He doesn't say anything about tithing. I think tithing's great, but it's not mentioned. You don't have to tithe to be saved. You don't have to give a penny. Not all preachers will tell you that, but <laughs> you don't have to give money. It doesn't say you have to become a preacher or a Sunday school teacher or even a deacon in order to be saved. It doesn't mention that in there. It doesn't even say you have to be baptized to be saved. And we're Baptist. That's our name. We believe baptism is really important, but it's not there. What does he say? You do this, you do this, you'll be saved. Saved means you'll be saved from your sins. You'll be redeemed by the blood of the lamb and you'll be forgiven for your sins and receive eternal life in heaven. That's what saved is. And this is how you do it. He says, if you'll do this and you'll do this, you'll be saved. Number one, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, to confess with your mouth means it's not a secret. You have to be willing to tell people. You know, the way they did in the first century is they were willing to submit to baptism. Baptism was an announcement. They didn't have churches and they didn't have aisles and they didn't have the ability to walk down aisles and announce to the congregation. They didn't have live streaming. And so the way they announced to the world was through baptism. The baptism didn't save them, but it was their willingness to be obedient and to be baptized. Their confession with their mouth, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. It is the grace of God that saves us. That if you confess with your mouth, here's what you have to confess, that Jesus is Lord. Not that Jesus is a cool guy. I've heard people say that, that Jesus, he was a cool guy. Yeah, he was a cool guy, but he was Lord. He was a lot more than a cool guy. Elvis was a cool guy. Jesus is Lord. You have to confess Jesus is Lord. Lord means he's, he's the top in your life. You do whatever he tells you. You submit to him. You surrender to him. You die to self. You're reborn in Christ and he tells you what to do and you do it. Absolute submission. And then the second thing he says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And again, I wasn't there. I didn't see it, but I believe the Bible is true. And the Bible tells us that Jesus died on a cross for your sins and my sin because the result of sin, your sin and my sin, is always the same. It is death. Jesus paid that penalty for us. 
After he died, they put him in a tomb. And three days later, the Bible tells us that he came back to life. Not in some allegorical way or metaphysical way. He literally bodily was resurrected from the dead. He wasn't a ghost. He had a physical presence to his being. I wasn't there, but I believe the Bible is true. And I believe that Jesus is alive. And frankly, honestly, if you're sitting there thinking, eh, I don't believe that. I got nothing for you. You can read the Bible all your life, memorize every word, take every course you want, and it won't make any difference. If you don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. But if you will confess with your mouth the Lordship of Christ, and you believe in your heart in faith in the resurrection, you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. This very hour, this very moment, you can be saved. And only believers can wear this armor. Have you ever heard of Black Bart? Black Bart actually existed. He was called Black Bart, wore a black hat and a black scarf over his face. He was a professional thief whose very name struck fear and terrorized the Wells Fargo stage line. From San Francisco to New York, his name became synonymous with danger in the frontier. Between 1875 and 1883, just those eight years, he robbed 29 different stagecoach crews. 29 robberies. Amazingly, he never fired a single shot. Never shot anybody. Black Bart, as terrifying as he was, never fired a single shot because a hood held his face. No victim ever saw his face and never was able to recognize him. He never took a hostage and was never trailed by a sheriff. Instead, Black Bart used fear to paralyze his victims. His sinister presence was enough to overwhelm even the, the toughest stagecoach guard. And so he was successful every single time. Fear paralyzes. He got that and built a career, if you call it that, on fear. Listen to me. Satan hates you. He hates you. And he wants you to wake up in fear this morning. He wants you to live your life in fear all day long. He wants you to go to bed tonight afraid. And he wants you to wake up tomorrow and this week, next month, and next year, and every decade of your life in fear. But God would say, fear not, for I am with you. This armor doesn't just allow us to survive the battle. It gives us absolute guaranteed victory every time. Are you wearing the armor of God? Pray with me. Father, we ask and pray today. I ask that if there is one here today who has not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, as they sit there, they know they are not wearing the shield of faith or the helmet of salvation, that they are susceptible. We thank you for this. It's an, it's an analogy. It's a picture that you paint for us. We know it's not a literal shield and a literal helmet, but it is something far more powerful. It is faith and salvation. 
If there's one here, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. This would be the hour. This would be the moment. The time they make their vow to you. That they surrender to their Savior in faith. We know that your word teaches us that we've all fallen short. We all sin. We say things, do things, think things that we shouldn't say or think or do. And that sin separates us from you. Those mistakes that we made, those bad choices in our life separate us from you. And as a result, we can't even fulfill our purpose in life, which is to bring you glory and to love you back because we're separated. And we have no hope. There is no deed that we can do that can undo all of those bad choices. And we know that that separation is not only for now, but it's for the next life as well. It's forever. But that you love us. And you don't want to separate us. So you sent your son to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, that we can be forgiven, cleansed by your mercy and come to you. We thank you and praise you that it doesn't matter what our nationality or our skin color or our background, it doesn't make any difference about any of that, that all have fallen short of you and all are in need of salvation. And that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, if there's one here right now, I pray that they would lift up to you this prayer, this confession, and that they would mean it in their heart. That they would right there, right where they are, simply pray this sincerely in their mind. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess I mess up. I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. I need to be saved. I believe in faith that you died for me on the cross in my place for my sins. And I believe that in three days, you came back to life and you're alive today. I confess you as my Lord and my Savior and I surrender my life to you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. If you prayed that prayer, no one's looking around. All heads are bowed, all eyes are closed. If you prayed that prayer, I want to challenge you to do something. When it says, if you confess, that was a public thing. I want to challenge you to come down and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. I surrender to Christ. And you know whether you've been saved or not. If you've given your life to Christ this morning, I challenge you to come and do that. I'm not going to make you make a speech or anything like that. Just come down and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. I gave Christ my life today. I surrendered to him. Would you be willing to do that? And I'll pray with you. And maybe God is calling you to make another decision. Maybe you or your family desires to join him with First Baptist Church and fight that fight here at First Baptist Church. Maybe God is calling you to rededicate your life or just you want to come down and kneel and pray for someone. If God is leading right now, this offering is for you. This invitation is for you. 
Would you stand? No one's looking around. Everyone stand. All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed. If you prayed that prayer, I challenge you. Come down and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. I gave my life to Christ right now. You come. 